Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Pardon the pun, but for Billy Joel, 1988 was the calm before the storm. Billy and the band had just come off an exhausting, groundbreaking two-year tour that saw them on four continents, and they capped it all off with a historic run of six shows in the now-former USSR. Billy was the first pop act from the West to get this kind of access behind the Iron Curtain. Behind the scenes, Billy was ready for a break. In fact, he was ready to take some time off even before The Bridge came out in 1986, but the record label insisted on a new album and tour. When this cycle was done, Billy powered down for a year. Aside from a few cameos, his work as a pop star was on hold. But he pulled double duty on his work as a dad. He spent time with his daughter, Alexa Ray, who was now two years old. And when he went to work, he appeared on TV shows and in movies that would appeal to kids her age. The next year would be a busy one. A new album, a new lineup of musicians and a lawsuit that would drag on for years. His career would look vastly different than it had just 12 months prior. We'll get to that year in a future episode. But for now, let's dig deep into 1988. One minute I'm in Central Park Then I'm down on the You know, it's nothing like doing a episode on a year when you were a kid to feel really, really old these days. It's like watching one of these old documentaries where you're like, the year was 1964, you know, it's... Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously the world's very different, but I guess it's because it's when we grew up, it was the baseline. Everything was a deviation from the 80s. Was it more or less like the 80s? You know? Right, right. <laughs> what were the Transformers and Ninja Turtles looking like, you know, in any <laughs> given decade? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but we were both young. You're two years older than me. And we both got into Billy Joel when we were kids. Never would have occurred to us that this was an off year. You know, we had no concept of this yet. So to us, Billy Joel was still riding high. And I would imagine to most of the public, he was just still riding high. For Billy... When he was recording and releasing albums, relatively speaking, they were in pretty quick succession. You know, to have only one year off where there wasn't a new release, really, I mean, that's really not that much downtime. And that probably, you know, is a big part of why he was getting so burnt out. I saw a documentary where Mick Jones said the same thing about the class. He was joking around. He goes, we never had a holiday. Oh, the band's got to go on holiday. We just kept going. And he kind of thinks that that's in part why they burned out so quickly. Yeah, it's really hard when you're a young band or a young artist and you're really working to build up that fan base and grow your career. It's a very busy and a very stressful time. But when you finally hit that level of success that The Clash did, that Billy Joel did, that Elton John did, that Metallica did, you've got to work doubly hard to maintain it. These artists, it was like, either in the studio or on tour, studio tour, studio tour. <laughs> it was an absolute grind for so many of these artists. I find it telling that this year he really seemed to straddle what he wanted out of his home life with advancing his career in sort of subtle ways. The few appearances we have, most of them are unlike anything he's done before. I'm really curious as to what that was like behind the scenes, if this was just some fortuitous circumstances that these opportunities came up at this time, or if he told somebody in his management team, I need a year off, and they said, okay, well, we have to do something. Let's see what's going to work for everyone. Yeah. And that's what got him these appearances, which, of course, we'll get into in a little while. Yeah, and I also wonder if he ever got these calls before to do like a Sesame Street, to do a kid's movie, to do things like that. Did those ever really come up earlier in his career? the In Harmony Children's Television Workshop album. Um, that was in 1982. But aside from that one-off song, it was adult pop career Billy Joel through and through. To see 1988 filled with so many things geared towards kids, I do wonder if he ever got those kind of calls before and just turned it down. And now that he had Alexa and was a father doing mm. something that may appeal to her, 
was a little more attractive? Yeah, it's a good question if we can ever get the right person on the line to ask them. I wouldn't even know who that would be. I mean, his manager at the time was Frank Weber, and I don't know that that conversation is <laughs> happening. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's get this elephant in the room uh, addressed now so we can get on with our lives. There is a storm front coming. Oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> Talk about getting old and making dad jokes. Right. <laughs> Low-hanging fruit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, there was there was problems a brewing in 1988, and before that, really, um, which was Billy Joel discovers that his manager and his ex-wife's brother Frank Weber had been defrauding him to the tune of millions of dollars over the years. From what little we can gather, he must have realized it sometime in 1988. The lawsuit is filed and goes public in '89, but it stands to reason, and I was kind of trying to look into it a little. It seems like the seeds were sown in 88 for this to come to fruition in 89. Also behind the scenes, and again, the timelines on these things are fuzzy, he sort of quietly lets almost all of the lords of 52nd Street go. Mm -hmm. Because when Stormfront comes out the next year, Liberty's the only one that's on it. And I wonder if some of that is related in the fact that by 1988, a lot of these guys were tenured musicians and it would stand to reason they were higher paid um, than a new hired gun who just, you know, joined the fold. If Billy is discovering that all this money is gone, you know, mm -hmm. he may go into a bit of a panic mode and, and think like, okay, I need to start saving money quick because I'm hemorrhaging now. I wonder if it was a combination of, you know, how he said he just wanted to try something new musically and get a fresh, approach to doing records. And I wonder if it was a combination of that and also a cost-saving measure. I would imagine it was a little bit of both. I mean, we know the band was also burned out. We know that getting them on the plane to Russia wasn't always the easiest thing to do. David Brown didn't even go. Doug was in a pretty bad mood about the whole thing. I go back to my theory that I've mentioned before that, you know, the guys that started in the 60s were lost in the 80s and found their footing in the 90s. The guys that came up in the 70s lost their footing in the 90s, came back in the 2000s. It's notable then because he beat Springsteen to the jump by, what, two years? Because yeah. Springsteen put out Human Touch and Lucky Town in 91, where he disbanded his longtime band as well. Yep. That does point to a natural progression of things. And I do think that somewhere I've read somewhere that, you know, people just kind of sat him down and was like, look, man, you're paying these guys X amount of money. You don't need to have guys that are making that much money for you. You're the star. It's, it's your name on there. Yeah. And that, of course, was ant antithetical to the arrangements he'd made and sort of the, the handshake deals to a degree that he'd made when the Lords came on, you know, back when it was famously everybody in rented cars and so on and so forth. That once I make money, we all make money. We all live a little higher on the hog. Yeah. And unfortunately, those deals are easy to shake hands on when you're young and hungry and yeah. No one's making a lot of money, but by the time 1988 rolls along, the Billy Joel organization is a big machine, and there are many moving parts and many people making decisions uh, who came along after the fact but can influence Billy in a lot of ways that the musicians couldn't. And let me clarify, yeah. when I say handshake deal, I'm I'm speaking metaphorically. I'm speaking about the fact that that was just sort of what he proposed to them, that this is the money we're making now, it's going to go up when it goes up sort of thing. Doesn't speak to whatever was actually put on paper. That's sort of the bummer stuff. Let's go into some more fun stuff now. Let's, uh, let's put a smile on our own faces about it. When it comes to 1988, there's a couple notable items to go through here. And a few of them, we really couldn't land on specific dates that things went down. Um, so we kind, of, we kind of assembled them into an order that kind of makes sense for us here. And so the first one on our list was March 2nd, 1988. And we talked about this earlier. And that was the Grammys where Billy played New York State of Mind. You know, this is something that gets covered elsewhere. But putting it in terms of 1988 and all we've talked about in terms of how even just his persona at award shows has evolved. This was the real rock star turn for him. You know, the real celebrity turn, you know. Uh, he's so much more confident on stage now. He's obviously fine with being a star at this point. Even on an off year, he's just trying to like clock in and clock out. This is mm -hmm. what that looks like for him. Yeah. And this performance here is only Liberty DeVito on drums. That's the only guy from the band. Right. 
who's involved. Yeah, so the timeline here gets really interesting. Well, we've seen situations where Billy's taken just one person from his band on something like Letterman or a talk show or something like that. So it's not unheard right. of, but it is telling that Liberty was the one that went. And for New York State of Mind, it's, you know, his bluesy standard. That's an easier one to pull off with just Liberty from the band. Yeah. So that makes sense. Liberty kind of anchored it with Billy and the two of them form the nucleus of the performance and everyone else just kind of fell around it. You know, what's funny. This just occurs to me. You know, Mark Rivera was never one of the Lords of 52nd Street, but every time we and others talk about Stormfront, it's whole new band. But Mark was on Stormfront, so he, you know, I mean, I, I don't That's feel true. bad for him necessarily, like, because he's, right. he's still in the organization. He's still doing great. But it's it just occurs to me that, like, we don't even talk about it uh, in those terms, you know, like, oh, Lib, Lib and Mark came through. It was like, no, the, the core band was gone, you know, technically. I think part of that is because even though Mark was a consistent figure touring in live, Unlike Liberty, Russell, David Brown, Doug, those guys were on, aside from a couple tracks on the bridge, those guys were on every song on those records. As Billy's career kind of moved forward, it was a little more guitar-driven and a little less sax-driven. That's true. So Mark Mark isn't on every song on those later records. And so I think maybe that's why he's not necessarily... Thought of in that respect. He's kind of put in that camp a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I'm running the songs in my head. He would have been on title track, When in Rome. That might be it. I'm going to look real quick just to see. Yeah. Look at the credits. David Brown did play guitar on Stormfront. He stayed through the Stormfront tour. This is another real example of just how muddled the Billy Joel history is. And I would hope a reason why nerds like us got to sit here and try to untangle it. Because there's a lot of sort of lore and generalities that are made. You know, like, oh, the Lords came on. And that was Billy's core band and this and that. And they were. But, you know, it took until Glass Houses until we got an album where they were all on the album consistently. And also the only ones on the album. That was the only one, really. And so, like I said, you know, for Stormfront, the story is always the original band or the, you know, the the classic band got disbanded and only Liberty stayed on. But it's not true because David Brown was there as well. And I don't even see Mark on here. No, I'm looking at the Stormfront credits. I do not see Mark's name anywhere, which is interesting. I see the Memphis Horns played on Stormfront. Lenny Pickett played on Stormfront and Win in Rome. Yeah, no, Mark Rivera. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I think it's a good digression. <laughs> so let's snap back here because I want to talk about this next, this next one. I love these two Sesame Street appearances. So these are both on the same episode, obviously. Billy Joel makes two appearances. Yeah, and this was season 20 of Sesame Street. Yeah. So 1988, so Sesame Street went on the air in 68. And we'll talk about the simpler one first. Uh, Billy Joel just comes on and does the ABCs. And here's what's funny. At the beginning of this, I mentioned, you know, what it's like looking back when you were a kid and you're our age, like, geez, we're getting old. Well, there was no YouTube. We weren't taping Sesame Street. You know, you missed something like this. That was it for a long, long time. And I'm going to guess as well that like even big Billy Joel fans weren't getting the memo that he was going to be on Sesame Street for them to tape it. You know, like you knew he was going to be on Letterman. There was no social media to tell people to tune in. Right. Yeah. If he was going to be on Letterman or something or, or Johnny Carson, somebody's going to pop a VHS in the, in the tape deck and, and capture it. But you had to get lucky with this. I believe because I'm seven at the time and I'm, you know, just out of Sesame Street mode. But my cousin, Danielle was only like two or three years old at the time. And of course, you know, she used to come over. We used to watch her and whatnot. At some point, my mom was like, oh, you know, Billy Joel was on Sesame Street. I'm like, what? Billy Joel? He was on Sesame Street? And then like my seven-year-old mind, like, what did he play? Did he play The Stranger? Did he play scenes from an Italian restaurant? She's like, no, it's a kid's show. What do you think he's doing a concert? Like, send the ABCs. I'm like, oh. He did sometimes a fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's breathing into the phone for all the little kitties there. Yeah. They rerun them and they rerun them. And sure enough, lo and behold, I couldn't tell you how much long, how much after the initial airing because I have no clue because I'm seven. But sure enough, because as we all know, Sesame Street are these little vignettes that just cut from one thing to the other. And all of a sudden, I'm just sitting there watching with my little cousin. It's like, oh, shit, there he is. <laughs> you know, so I only saw the ABCs <laughs> yeah. back then. I didn't know the other one existed for years and years after that. But I just remember, like, he just came on, you know, everybody, you know, and then, so he sings the ABCs by himself. What is that, a Fender Rhodes he had? Yeah, the Fender Rhodes. Yeah, which yeah. I thought was an interesting 
yet practical choice because they didn't have to roll around a grand piano. The CP80 mm -hmm. probably would have been just as much of a pain. And they would have had to retune an upright because it's in two places, one per e for each sketch. So it makes sense to go right. with that. Yeah. And they didn't go with like just a BZ80s keyboard. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time, won't you sing with me? Okay, you all want to sing the ABC song? Yeah! Here we go. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. And the second one, probably the most circulated of the bunch, and it's Billy singing a modified version of Just the Way You Are to Oscar the Grouch <laughs> with a young Marley Matlin doing sign language. Yeah. This is, there's a lot of little subversive jokes in this one. I think my favorite is when Oscar tells him this is the mushiest thing I've ever heard. Which is like almost like what they all thought when they did the song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought this was a really subtle in-joke, but maybe I'm completely wrong. Well, one of the other big uh, stars of the 80s was Michael Jackson. So Billy Joel rolls up to Oscar's trash can, and then Oscar says, beat it. Oh, funny. Eh, you know, could be, could not, you know. I choose to think so. In my dad joke phase of my life, in the autumn years. <laughs> oh, yeah, he says, I'm Billy Joel. He goes, Billy Joel what? Cat got your last name? That's a great line. Yeah, Billy always makes fun of, like, you know, it's like he's got two first names, and <laughs> I like how they, they incorporated that into Oscar's jabs. Yeah. And, you know, so some of the lyrics here are changed to be about singing to Oscar the Grouch. And it's funny because, like, it's Sesame Street and, you know, everybody, all the kids should know it's established that Oscar is a grouch and he's this and that. But it's funny because Billy Joel starts off with, you know, don't ever change being mean, keep being a grouch, keep frowning at people. And you're almost like, man, you're really going to tell the kids that? Like, you know, obviously most of them know that Oscar's a grouch and that's the funny thing about it. But it's actually pretty clever how it just... You know, it just keeps hanging on. I like you just the way you are. You know, I want you just the way you are. And then by the end, it just all sounds nicer. So even within that, the battery mm -hmm. of child psychologists seem to have done a good job on that. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was clever for sure. Let's take a listen. Let's check it out. State your name, then beat it. I'm Billy Joel. Billy Joel what? Cat got your last name there? <laughs> just Billy Joel. Oh. And this is Marley Matlin. Hi. Yeah, hi. We're grouch groupies. We love grouches. You love grouches? Oh, yuck. And whenever I throw away a used piano, I give it to a grouch. And this time, you're it. Oh, yeah? Oh, a used piano, man. Huh. And Marley helped me push this here. Yeah? Well, while you're pushing, why don't you just both shove off? <laughs> but leave my piano. <laughs> Uh, not yet. Hmm? Because with the piano comes a song. A love song. A love song? Oh. You hear the song, and then you get the piano. Uh, I knew there had to be strings attached. This one's for you, Oscar. Right from the heart. Right from the heart? Oh, I'm gonna hate this. Don't go changing just to please me. Cause being friendly is not your style. Mm -hmm. Don't wanna hear you saying thank you. I won't. But I would hate to see you smile. I never smile. Just be grouchy. Really grouchy. You've done it pretty well so far. Oh, compliments. This is getting pretty sticky. Mm -hmm. I took the bad times. I'll take the worst times. Mm -hmm. 
I'll take you just the way you are. Where I am, huh? Huh, I'll change that. Don't go trying some new fashion. How's this? I wouldn't like you, Debonair. That can you stash your trash in? Don't even try to comb your hair. Just get lost, huh? And don't try friendly conversation. It wasn't friendly. Don't change the oil in your car. Mm -hmm. We just want someone. We can't talk to. We want you just the way you are. Well, you can't have me. Uh. I want to know that you will always be the same old Oscar that I knew. Is this him? Forever, and this I promise from the heart. Mm -hmm. We couldn't love you any better. This is the mushiest thing I've ever heard. The way you are. Uh, uh, what are you doing? What's this? What? Hey! Ah! Uh, never hug a grouch. You're kissing me. Ah! Uh, never do that to a grouch. You know, it was a great line, and, and it's a funny line to add in. I wouldn't like you debonair. First of all, it's a, it's a fantastic line in and of itself, but he didn't have to change that line, nor does a kid know what debonair means. It's a funny one to change. Tops it off with, I hate this piano. It's tuned. I like that. Coming out of Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, it goes back to your earlier point of choosing the Fender Rhodes over the CP80 or the Grand Piano or an Upright, which all would need to be tuned because they're all stringed. You know, the, the Fender Rhodes is a plug-and-play electric instrument. And I tell you, Billy, his look here, the, the glasses and, you know, what he's wearing all black, he is in Stormfront vibe mm -hmm. by 1988 here. Yeah, he's coming off the, the real 80s, 80s look of the bridge. You know, the, the, the lighter colored suits and things like that. And then, you know, this kind of carried over into his look throughout the whole Stormfront run. Yeah. Pretty much all, all black. Um, I think by the tour, he added the uh, anchor pin. Right. But uh, that was kind of his vibe. The sunglasses and, you know, all in black, head to toe. That was the, uh, the look for Stormfront. And it's uh, starting to creep in here. Yeah, the sunglasses thing I thought was interesting. Do you wonder if it was his look or if it was maybe he wasn't like, Although he wanted to do it, he wasn't the most comfortable in that situation. So it's like, all right, let's cover his eyes. You <laughs> can't see him like yeah. bugging out about it. And even though the you know the scenes are all on in a studio, I mean, the setting is outside, so it kind of works. It's a lot of close-ups on him. I tell you a funny quick story. My friend was in a touring band years ago, and mm -hmm. he and some of the guys in the band got a tour of the Sesame Street Studios at one point. Oh yeah, and they said it was. So amazing just to see it all in person and to walk through it. And it was so exciting until they looked up because that is where they stored Snuffleupagus. Oh, no. Because <laughs> he's so huge, yeah. right? So they just put a tarp over him and string him up into the rafters. So you got this giant woolly mammoth Muppet <laughs> hanging <laughs> from the rafters over the studio. <laughs> And, you know, if he was a little nervous, perhaps, about being camera up close and personal on, on a kid's show, his other major endeavor this year certainly skirted around that issue. We're talking about Oliver and Company, which was produced in 1988 and got its theatrical release on November 18th. And it featured also the last collaboration between Billy and Phil Ramone for almost 20 years. Just about. 
So that was why uh, the song Why Should I Worry. Which was written by Dan Hartman and Charlie Midnight. And a great little curio in Billy's catalog. talked about this way way back on like what our third episode something crazy like that yeah for the b-sides and rarities yeah yep and then the movie billy had a starring role as the dog dodger who uh is one of the main characters throughout the film for a guy that always had a rubber voice and always knew it and didn't want to put out new music anymore i'm a little surprised you didn't do more cartoons and more voice work i could understand him not being like well this is the next phase of my career but I'm a right. little surprised that he didn't do it a few more times. And on this role, too, he really didn't stretch too much. It was almost just a little more exaggerated version of Billy Joel. Yeah. He just turned up the New York a little bit yeah. and made it a little <laughs> more cartoonish. I mean, I guess, you know, if you needed somebody to do impressions, there's somebody you can pay less than Billy Joel to pretty much get the same effect, you know? <laughs> yeah, because this is before the, the celebrity casting started with Robin Williams and Aladdin. This is still kind of in the dark era of Disney's um, where there was a period in the end of the 80s into the early 90s where uh, the Disney movies just didn't do that well. Like you said, things changed pretty quickly with Aladdin and then the Lion King into the 90s where Disney was huge again. But Oliver and Company in 88 here really didn't do well. So oddly enough, the only concert we show him playing, the only official full set is something called the Kieran Dry Gigs 88 at the Tokyo Dome in Tokyo, Japan. And in case I'm pronouncing this wrong, it's K-I-R-I-N, Dry Gigs. There is precious, precious little about this. The only way I can sort of piece together what's gone on is that there's a set list on Set List FM, and it seems like a pretty typical uh, late 80s set list, Matter of Trust, Pressure, Miami 2017, The Stranger, Innocent Man, Big Man on Mulberry Street, you know, a whole bunch of the old hits, Keeping the Faith, a couple others. It was at the Tokyo Dome, and it looks like the performers were Billy Joel, Boz Skaggs, Art Garfunkel, The Hooters, and I don't even know how to say this, Impelliteri. I-M-P-E-L-L-I-T-T-E-R-I. Hmm. Now, the only way I'm putting this together is just going in, like, Google Images and eBay and finding, like, T-shirts and bootleg CDs and posters. Yeah. That's telling me like who was on it, you know. There is a uh, hey man, this is a uh, this is something for you here. There's a pro, there's a tour program. Hmm. I think there's one with Billy Joel. Yeah, there's one here with Billy Joel on the front. And this is in giginjapan.com. Okay. Oh no, that's the two CD the the, the two CD set. But there was a uh, program somewhere. Here we go. I got it. I got it. All right. Here's the liner notes from this thing. I guess it says uh, in the latter half of the 1980s. When the bubble culminated, Western music concerts began to become customary for big names to come to Japan. Okay, this must have been translated because this is how it's written. And in 1988, a unique event using the Tokyo Dome, which had just opened, was held in July. This is an event where artists gathered together to promote the release of the best compilation album of Western music edited by a record company unique to Japan. It was called Dry Gigs because its sponsor was a liquor maker. And in a sense, it was an epoch-making event that could be called the forerunner of the current festival. I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so that's what this was. I guess this was when American music was really taken off, or Western music was really taken off in Japan. So they put this uh, this festival together. Interesting. I'm very curious who played on it. That's true. I'm, I highly doubt this bootleg CD. Oh, it does. Look at this. Man, I should have done my research before we started recording. Wouldn't that have been something? <laughs> have been way too easy. You know easy. what I was like in junior high? A total bastard. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so here we go. <laughs> okay, so here's the whole set. Here's all of Billy Joel's set. Live at Tokyo Dome, Tokyo, Japan, July 24th, 88. Introduction, Matter of Trust, Pressure, Miami 2017, Honesty, Stranger, An Innocent Man, Big Man on Mulberry Street, Only the Good Die Young, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, you may be right. Big shot, my life, keeping the faith, back in the USSR, and I saw her standing there. 
and this is just Billy Joel, and then it says, with Boggs Skaggs, Graham Bonnet of Impelitary, Chris Impelitary of Impelitary, and Rob Hyman of the Hooters. Here's the band. Get this. Billy Joel, vocals, piano, guitar. Liberty DeVito, drums and percussion. Dave LeBolt, keyboards. Shyler Deal, bass. John McCurry, guitar. Peter Hewlett, guitar. Eric Bazilian on sax from the Hooters. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, this puts us mid-year without the core band, without even Mark Rivera. And so Skylar Deal was already in the fold because he played on the Stormfront album and tour. Right. And Dave LeBolt was still on because by the time Stormfront came around, he was replaced by Jeff Jacobs. If I remember correctly from what you've told me, now Peter Hewlett was there for An Innocent Man and stuff, but just for background vocals. Yeah, Innocent Man and the Bridge Tours and then Last Play at Shade did background vocals. No guitar, though. Yeah, so he's on guitar on this one. Wow, that's a wild... I'd love to hear that. Kind of amazed that this has never come up. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really well-kept secret. It is the true transition point of the uh, band because... You've got a new member here. You've got Dave LeBolt still carrying over. So this is really interesting. And this isn't even on YouTube anywhere. One of us is going to have to spring for this CD. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> going to have to look up this gig in Japan guy and be like, yo, send us a copy. We're the guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, a, um, I guess, a label number. It says UX Bridge 1431. So it's got, what would you call, what do you call those numbers? Catalog number. Catalog number. Thank you. UX Bridge seems to be the label. And it's a CD. It's not like it's a, you know, a crappy vinyl record or a handwritten cassette. So I guess it's out there somewhere. Got to get a hold of that. That's that's really cool. But now I'm happy. Now we got something yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I got one more thing. This is, I think this is a nice way to, to cap off this year because it's such a weird year. We were lucky that we had a very long episode, a few episodes back with the award shows and Evan Toth. So it worked out for us to split the award show piece into two pieces and we had this shorter one to pair it with. But I did find this. In 1988, Billy Joel met Leonard Bernstein, and Leonard Bernstein told him, you should be writing musicals. Broadway needs you. That's a great quote. He'd gone to see Madonna and David Mamet's play Speed the Plow, and as they were leaving, Leonard Bernstein was there, was walking up the aisle, and knew who Billy Joel was, and called him over and said, Billy Joel, you need to, you need to be writing musicals. And he remembers that quote, Bernstein was dropping... These song titles, my song titles, New York State of Mind and Just the Way You Are. And I hadn't realized that he even knew I existed. How cool. You know, I guess for everything that was to come, got to be a high point. And as we start to wrap up 1988, Billy, Liberty, David Brown, and a whole bunch of other great new musicians start to get into the studio with Mick Jones to record what would become Stormfront. And of course, when we get to 1989, I'm going to do my homework before class that time (laughs) because that's going to be a big one. It was a slow year, but it sure was an interesting one. A lot of unusual things we don't see again in Billy's career happened this year. I'm, I'm glad he got to have a year away from the road, largely. Got to spend a little time with Alexa and Christy at home. And it's just unfortunate that after that is when everything was found out about Frank Weber. And because of the sheer volume of money that he lost... You know, now he had to go on the road for even longer than before. Mm. You know, he, he just yeah. couldn't win in this situation. Well, for a, a relatively uneventful year, it certainly still was an interesting one. We did see these things that never really pop up again in Billy's career. The kid show appearances, the cartoon and voiceover. And I'm glad we uncovered this whole Kieran Dry Gigs thing, which neither of us knew about before that, which is a real rarity then. That was probably one of the coolest discoveries of this year. I, I had no idea it existed, and I, I really want to try and track it down because I think it's going to be a mm-hmm. fascinating uh, moment in Billy's career and yet another transitional point, which we've talked about so many times <laughs> in these episodes. Well, we got to make it interesting when we do these episodes. Everything's either the year something happened, the year after it happened, the year right. it was about to happen, or a transition <laughs> point. <laughs> Speaking of transitions. Yeah, yes. Speaking of transitions. We're going to go scour eBay for this bootleg CD. And while we're gone, we're going to play you the tape of the second half of our awards show episode. So let's hit play. So he doesn't win any of the MTV Video Music Awards. There is one more award this year that he does win. And based on what he says, I think he's happy with the fact that he won this one even if it was like almost at the expense of the others. Yeah, so again, this is 1990, so this wasn't 
for an album or a song specifically, but this was a very short-lived award show called the International Rock Awards. Billy wins the award for MVP keyboards. Ironic that it's on an album that had to date the least amount of keyboards on it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Stormfront was one of the most uh, guitar-driven albums. If you have not heard of the International Rock Awards, you're not alone because they did not last very long. In fact, they only lasted for three years. It was a United States uh, award ceremony meant to honor top musicians of the rock genre. The awards were only broadcast for three years on ABC, 1989 to 1991. And the award show was interpreted to have been an attempt to provide a buildup to the Grammy Awards, but it failed to attract an audience and was essentially scrapped after just a couple of years. But even though it was short-lived, this is pretty star-studded. So we were talking about before, like, you know, how you see the people change over. You know, we started off with Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb. And now we get Gary Busey and Sam Kinison. Sam Kinison. <laughs> yeah. with, a, with enough maniac energy to power a small country up there. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, they just made me anxious. They were just so insane yeah. and jittery up there. Did you see the part where Elton John calls him a pig? No. It was on the uh, the Eric Clapton part. So Eric Clapton won wins something on this thing. Yeah, and Billy and, uh, actually actually That's right. Billy introduced it, right? Yeah, anyways, yeah, Billy wins MVP keyboards and he also introduces Eric Clapton. So they they do a quick cut of like a few different people in different places. There's Elton John, he's on tour somewhere and wherever he's where he's wherever he is, he's not in the room. And he says something to the effect of, I want to congratulate Sam Kinison for the first pig to ever present at an awards show. And just in Elton John style, just says something. It's great to be here. Calls Sam Kinison a pig, doesn't miss a breath, and keeps on going into Eric Clapton. <laughs> See, so much so that I didn't even catch it because it was just yeah, so smooth. Yeah, I had to listen twice. Yeah. Billy Joel had that great line, too. He brings back the old Clapton is God. The graffiti used to be Clapton is God, and I know Eric doesn't like that, so I added an extra O. So now it says Clapton is good. <laughs> it's also worth noting that the award that Billy wins was actually presented by Paul Schaefer and Christy. And they do the most longest drawn-out joke. So drawn-out that like they cut to Billy, and Billy gives a, eh, wasn't that good look. So the whole joke, I'll, I'll do this a lot quicker, because we watch this stuff so you don't have to. The whole joke is it's Christy Brinkley and Paul Schaefer. And Paul Schaefer says, hey, you know, I was kind of intimidated that I had to come out with you. And Christy says, you know, I was kind of intimidated, nervous that I had to come out with you. And Paul Schaefer says, why? And she goes, oh, well, as you know, I have a thing for short piano players. Now imagine that dragging off for almost a minute. Billy gives it the polite, but I think it's bad head nod and half smile. Yeah. I like what he said, though. He says, I'm assuming this is for chops. You know, he's like, I'm assuming this is actually because I can play the piano well, not because... I have a hit song. So that was kind of cool. Because that's what it was about for him. He liked to be recognized for being a musician and a songwriter, not necessarily being the hits or the creating sounds or whatever. I, I think he really liked being respected for being a player. All right. Thank you. Uh, good to be back here in New York. I just left uh, 40,000 screaming Irish people in Dublin a day ago. And um, I'm home. I, and I, uh, I want to thank you for this award. This is, I'm assuming, this is, this is not for sounds and programming. I'm assuming this is for chop. Okay. This is for playing. Thank you very much. Thanks. And speaking of which, it's great because I have like a big jam at the end, which looks to be a bit informal. This time we get a huge blues jam with Sam Kinison on guitar. And you see Billy off to the side, like kind of nodding along and then just sort of like takes over on the Hammond from someone else. It looks like like Paul Schaefer, I think it was stabbing at a couple notes and then Paul moves over and lets him take over officially. Coupled with the fact that Stormfront came out later in the year, you know, it came out October of 89 and the album was so big. Billy had some nominations lead over into 1991 for the 33rd annual Grammy Awards. So he was up for. Best Pop Vocal Performance Male for Stormfront for the album. Producer of the Year, Non-Classical. Also that year, there was a special Grammy Legend Awards held where Billy won the Grammy Legend Award. That was a separate right. event. Yeah, that wasn't a, a very well publicized one. You wonder if it sort of made up for them not giving him 
much to work with in the 80s. You know, after 52nd Street and Glass Houses, it really kind of dried up on the award circuit. So they gave him this big award. I think there were four four different winners that night. It was Billy Joel, mm-hmm. Johnny Cash, Aretha Franklin, and Quincy Jones. Yeah, well, certainly good company. This, you know, was split up into like a feature about each mm. artist. Billy's portion is actually hosted by James Woods. He talks about, you know, Billy's life and career a bit. But then it goes into these performance segments where all these different artists are doing Billy Joel songs. You had Regina Bell doing Just the Way You Are with Phil Woods playing sax. Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons doing Uptown Girl. Benny King, Dion, Johnny Gill, Keith Sweat, Graham Nash, David Ruffin and Dennis Edwards from The Temptations, and Frankie Valley all doing The Longest Time. Ronnie Spector, obviously doing Say Goodbye to Hollywood. So yeah, so after those performances, James Woods brings Billy up and, you know, presents the award to him, and he gives a a nice speech. Thank you very much. Uh, First, let me say what an honor it is to be included among the artists here tonight. I was a fan of their music before I recorded any of my own. Uh, Hard to believe that I'm included with them. I want to thank all the artists who perform my songs tonight. I always hope to hear players like Bob James, Bill Woods interpret my stuff, and hear my music sung by real singers. Uh, And aside from, you know, what's topical, I mean, real singers, I mean vocalists. Uh, I don't think of myself as a singer. These people are, are true vocalists, and so many of them are heroes to me. Uh, Dion, Benny King, David Ruffin, Dennis Edwards, Graham Nash. I used to sing Street Corner Harmony to their records, and here they are singing mine. And to a new generation of artists like Melissa Etheridge, Regina Bell, Johnny Gill, and Keith Sweat, to sing my songs means my compositions will continue to live beyond my recording. And finally, for a songwriter to have Frankie Valley and Four Seasons, Ronnie Spector, sing the songs that were written with them in mind, the ultimate payback um, to my wife Christy. Thank you for <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I say that every night. I want to thank you for putting up with all the inconveniences that come with me, but you have been a, a constant source of great inspiration to me, and you're also responsible for my most successful production, my daughter, Alexa Ray. Uh, And finally, I would like to thank my mother, who in a less enlightened time, struggled as a single parent to earn a living and provide my sister and myself with a decent home, and still managed somehow to pay for piano lessons. She's my living legend. But probably the highlight of this is Billy goes and does a solo performance of And So It Goes to close it out, which was a really nice piece. In every heart there is a home A sanctuary safe and strong To heal the wounds from lovers past Until a new one comes along So after the Grammy Legend Award, we get into 1992, where Billy has a couple more Grammy nominations, but um, not for Stormfront, per se. Best music video short form for his version of When You Wish Upon a Star. There was a, um, a compilation that Disney put out called Simply Mad About the Mouse, and this was included in that. If you go back to maybe our third episode, I think it was B-Sides and Alternate Takes, something like that. We talk about that one a little there, if you haven't gone all the way back yet. And then also in 92, he was up for Best Music Video Long Form for Live at Yankee Stadium. Pretty good for a non-album year. Yeah, he was squarely out of Stormfront cycle then as he started to prepare the next round, which was going to be the River of Dreams album. And here's where things get interesting. Ah, uh, yeah. So let's let's get through the boring stuff first. Let's just talk about how he was up for four nominations. Record of the Year, Album of the Year, Song of the Year, Best Pop Vocal Performance, Male, doesn't win any of them. Go on, sir. Now, this is something that we have touched on in the past, but it's so good that it certainly has to be mentioned. Oh, yeah. Earlier in the evening, chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra, (laughs) takes home a big award. Frank, at this point, is getting up in years and not sure how much longer he's going to be with us at this point. And so he's up there giving the speech. And as happens on award shows, they 
cut him off after he goes on a little longer than they wanted. Yeah. So he's still up giving his speech and they play him out and go to the commercial. It's not written down anywhere, but you don't cut off Frank Sinatra. Billy, being the guy he is, along with millions of other people, take notice. <laughs> However, Billy's performance is still to come and he plans to take advantage of that. <laughs> so what does Billy do, Jack? On the breaks when he's doing River of Dreams, on one of the breaks, he turns to the camera, puts his arm up to check his watch and goes, Valuable advertising time going by. <laughs> Valuable advertising time going by. Dollars, dollars, dollars. <laughs> he just looks back on what he's done, takes a moment, and then starts in again. But like he leaves a good pause in there. Like this does, you know, he doesn't do it quickly. He really lets the moment hang. But on the break before, he puts his hands up and he snaps. And you wonder if, like, he was thinking of doing it then and hasn't quite decided yet. Or if that was, like, a signal to the band that it was going to happen the next time, you know? Like, you know, who knows? Because he knows there's nothing they could do. Because they're not going to cut him two-thirds through the song, right? And it's probably too long to get around the, uh, to use the sensor button. Like, it was, like, right. a five-second delay because he makes it go on yeah. longer. This is the one where, where, where Bono drops the F-bomb, too. Yeah, Billy's final performance. He was nominated one more time down the road we'll get to. But yeah, final performance. And yeah, that could have something to do with it. Well, granted, that was his last pop record as well. But what a way to go out, huh? Yeah, right. Oh, man. What a classic. Again, in 94, we're moving over now to the American Music Awards. And he received one nomination then for adult contemporary album for River of Dreams. Nominated, not one. He also won his only Billboard Music Award that year, and it was called the Century Award. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Tori Amos presented it to him. Yeah, this is the one where, he's, where they were in Australia. Yeah, and I think they were both on happened to be on tour in Australia at the time. Yeah, so we get uh, we get some live uh, compilation of previously released live footage. There's Piano Man from Yankee Stadium. Uh, there's some stuff from the the Russia tour, some uh, live from Long Island, piece of the pressure video, piece of the River of Dreams video, We Didn't Start the Fire, and then it's uh, and then it cuts to Tori Amos and Billy Joel sitting next to each other. I guess they're actually outside. You see the yeah, the, you see the wind blowing. The Sydney Opera House is in the background. Here via satellite in Sydney, Australia, where she's with Billy to present his award is Alternative Rock's leading piano woman and a major Billy Joel fan, Tori Amos. I'm really thrilled to present this to Billy Joel. This is the Century Award um, presented by Billboard. As a piano player, obviously, um, you being a mentor of mine, I'd play in those piano bars and play so many Billy Joel songs at night, it'd be like, God, can I ever play my own songs? And I think um, you've reached so many different cultures. I was in a van the other day. Five people from different countries were singing Billy Joel songs from all different ages. And I don't think as a songwriter, you know, you can ask for anything more than to have people sing your work. So this is like so thrilling for me. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to say I'm very happy to be given this award by Tori Amos because I admire your work. And I'm glad to see that women artists are beginning uh, to make some inroads into what have previously been the male domain, specifically women piano players. Uh, I also want to thank Billboard magazine for this. Uh, it's a great honor, and considering they're calling it the Century Award, and this was a century where people like uh, Igor Stravinsky, Elmer uh, Bernstein, and Leonard Bernstein, and uh, Aaron Copeland, and Gershwin, and the Beatles, and Bob Dylan. Not bad company. Well, yeah, it lived. <laughs> um, I I'm very honored. and. Um, uh, I, I'd like to just point out that uh, it's 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 been a great life to have lived so far, and 
to be able to do what I love has been uh, the greatest part of it. And uh, it just confirms that I made the right decision when everybody told me I was crazy to start doing what I was doing. So once again, thank you very much. It was, a, it was a nice moment. It was nice to see somebody like Tori Amos present it to somebody who clearly knew Billy's material and, you know, respected him. It's not just like some other random presenter. Yeah, it's not Ted Nugent and Grace Slick. With this being Billy's final album cycle, the awards start getting few and far between from here on out. We have got a five-year gap now till his mm-hmm. next award. It's actually the American Music Awards in 1999, he won the Award of Merit. What a horrible sounding award. I know. It sounds like something Principal Skinner gives out to like Ralph. My award tastes like chalk. I have merit. And with that, I make my Simpsons joke quota for the episode. I'm going to old man it, but go from this back to like a couple of the first award shows that, that we talked about. It's a little more sterile. It's a little more choreographed. Everything yeah. just happens perfectly. Everybody knows they have to clap for 98 degrees. You know what I mean? Like Billy's like mugging and smiling and pointing at him where like, you know, 30 years ago, he's like giving right. an eh kind of nod to a cheesy joke. Sign of the times. I mean, this is now we're getting into the era too where like they had to do something outrageous every year because like nobody cared anymore. This award specifically there's a bunch of performers. It's like 98 degrees and in sync Brian McKnight, Lee and Rhymes. It's like the pop acts of the day. I don't know, to me it almost kind of trivializes the music. I know they're trying to be like look at he's touched this current generation of acts or whatever, but it almost feels like it kind of cheapens the songs. Having like 98 degrees doing a really bad version of Uptown Girl or whatever they did. I don't know. You know, if you have like legends of the day doing it, you end up with a performance that people just remember that, oh, that guy did it. Like Dolly Parton doing Stairway to Heaven for Jimmy Page. Give me Foo Fighters doing Moving Out. Because by then, you know, they've cemented their place. You know, it's it's there's right. something interesting about that. I wanted something with an edge and I didn't get it. They didn't even give us you two. Get it? Exactly. No edge. No Larry Mullen even. Yeah. (laughs) I am aging like as the podcast goes on. (laughs) I know, right? And then we have uh, 2001. We have the Johnny Mercer Award. Essentially, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame that year. And then uh, 2002. This is an interesting one. Nomination. This was Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals at the 44th Annual Grammy Awards for New York State of Mind with Tony Bennett. And this would mark his final... Grammy nomination to date. But we do have a few more awards to get through. Here we have Billy finally branching into Broadway and winning a Tony Award the following year, 2003, for Best Orchestrations on Moving Out. And this is also the year where he opens the award show with a live solo performance of New York State of Mind in Times Square. Throws a little Gershwin in. If you go back, this is another good callback. If you go back to our 2003 episode, we dive into this a little more. It was just good to see Billy performing again. Um, I know this was about to go into his big hibernation. And Billy also does make an appearance in 2003 as he inducted the Righteous Brothers into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We didn't really talk about it much here either, but Billy was also inducted back in 1999. And Ray Charles is the one who inducted Billy, which I thought was amazing. Talked also about, you know, just the the significance of placing Ray Charles even on the bridge, you know, how that sort of represented his influences and what he listened to growing up versus, you know, Stevie Winwood being on the album as a contemporary and Cindy Lauper being the next generation. So from the Phil Ramone book, we know how nervous Billy was about whether or not Ray Charles would do it and how excited he was when he was on Baby Grand. So that by contrast, as we were saying, how the award of merit felt really stale, having Ray Charles induct him felt like that meant something, like somebody actually put some thought into that. Probably one of the best choices for presenting Billy with a big lifetime award like this. I I just love Ray's speech. And he says something when he's like, yeah, I got you now, Billy, or something like that when Billy comes (laughs) out or whatever. And they give each other a big hug. It's just, it was just such a great moment. And last but certainly not least, we have Billy Joel's induction into the Kennedy Center Honors in 2013. And it's a, it's a really good one to end on. Pretty much everything else we've been touching on has been a quick performance or a mention. And this is a solid 
almost a half hour devoted just to Billy. And what I did like is that they mixed a combination of contemporary singers and some newer singers. And, you know, you had country, you had pop, you had some soul stuff going on. It was a really nice blend, I thought, of the artists that they chose to honor Billy that night. A couple performances I liked more than I thought I was going to like. I love that Tony Bennett came out first and introduced him. I love the setup. I love the framework he put in, uh, talking about how Billy and, and other artists like him have written the new American songbook. Coming from Tony Bennett, that means it, you know? <laughs> that that's, that's the real deal, certainly. Yeah, coming from a guy who personifies it, you know? You know who else I liked on this? What's his name from Panic at the Disco? He did a really good job of Big Shot. Yeah, Brandon Yuri. Yeah, I was not expecting... He, he toned the theatrics down just enough. Because, I mean, Big Shots, that song was kind of made for Broadway as much as I love it. I think he really did a good job of, of really straddling the line between being theatric and giving a solid performance and being a bit of a rock star about it. Great presence, great interpretation. I liked Rufus yep. Wainwright, too. He can swell his voice so nicely. Yeah, he has such control. It's really wild. It's something so unique that... I really haven't heard on him many other singers. Do you ever wonder how awkward this is? Yeah, yeah, Billy's a pretty humble guy from you know what we've yeah. heard from people, and you got to sit there for 25 minutes of people like stroking you. Yeah, you know how awkward it is when people sing "Happy Birthday" to you, and you got to like grit your teeth for 30 seconds. This went off yeah. for a half hour at least, like what we saw on the on the broadcast. <laughs> you know, it's like the kind of tribute that you get after you die, <laughs> so you don't have to sit through it uncomfortably. Um, but like a champ, he took it. And when the camera was on him, he, he seemed happy to be there and was enjoying it. And, you know, certainly a better tribute than, uh, you know, what was those American music award tributes that came a decade earlier that we were talking about. This was certainly better put together and much more care was put into the, the choice of performers in this instance. And that'll do it for us. That is almost 40 years of, uh, of award shows. How's my math on that? You know, that's not something we really touched on much. You know, how many other artists out there who have had that kind of longevity where 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s are all up for major awards as the flavor of the week pop acts of the day change in and out like a menu? It's pretty incredible that Billy has maintained that type of presence that long. Yeah, just look at the different presenters that came and went over all these uh, clips that we covered. So once again, we turn it over to you guys. Who remembers watching these live? Who remembers guffawing at River of Dreams? Who knew all the uh, in-jokes that Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb were making? Were you as puzzled as I was to see Ted Nugent presenting an award back in 1981? (laughs) With Grace Slick, no less. (laughs) And you know, I'm curious too, if any of you were at one of these award shows. I remember seeing Brad Lee recently post, I think it was a a ticket to the Grammys in the early 80s there. You know, back then they were a much smaller affair, much smaller venues. You know, now, well, prior to the current situation, they were held at, you know, big arenas. So you could fit 25,000, 20,000 people in. But back in the day, it was a smaller room. I'm curious if any of you got in, if any any of you saw these actually live in in the venue. And if so, what was your experience like actually seeing this award show happen in front of you? Definitely email us. You know, as we said uh, a couple episodes back, if we'd like to read your email on an episode, we'll definitely reach out to you first and let you know in case you want to edit anything or not have it on there. But we definitely want to hear from you guys. I mean, if you want to get technical, we recorded like three outros in a night. So who knows? By the time we said the first one, we've gotten a deluge and we're saying it again. But who the hell knows? Right. (laughs) Exactly. That's true. Six weeks have passed in the last hour and a half here. Yeah, it's kind of weird. <laughs> so yeah, so reach out to us anytime. You can find us. Uh, email is an easy way to get in touch with us. Both Jack and I uh, respond to everybody. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. That's the quickest way to get to us. Jack, where else can they find us? Find us on all the socials. Just look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Glasshouses, a Billy Joel podcast. And oh, hey, where do you listen to your podcast? Is it Stitcher? Is it Spotify? Is it, drum roll please, Apple Podcasts? And if it is Apple Podcasts, then you're in luck. Or we're in luck, hopefully. Because there's something that you can do for us that just takes a couple minutes, but it goes a long way to support this podcast. If you leave a five-star rating and a positive review, that tells Apple 
that people like us, people listen to us. So it recommends us to more people and therefore can quickly grow the community. We love you guys and we want more of you. Fire them off. Let us know what's up. We're excited to hear from you. And until the next episode, uh, I don't know, now presenting. I did not think of an ending. We're going to have uh, the Grammys play you off the air. <laughs> I'm just going to ramble for a while and, you know. We'll see you next time, everyone. Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs>